This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. Hi everyone, this is Margarida from Stories of Win, and I have the pleasure today of interviewing Dr. Isabella Wagner. Dr. Isabella is a principal investigator at the Vienna Cognitive Science Hub and University of Vienna, and the Wagner Lab aims to understand how the human brain allows us to flexibly adapt to new experiences, learn new information, and form long-lasting memories. Thank you so much, Isabella, for being here with me today. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And so we always start by asking our guests, how did they first get interested in the brain and in neuroscience? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so that was actually really early on in my um, studies already. I studied psychology at the University of Graz, so that's um, a small uh, town in the south of Austria, my hometown. And I was attending a um, lecture series on cognitive neuroscience. So that was all about the brain. And there I really realized that this is the topic that fascinates me the most. Um, and specifically then we learned about Eric Kandel and the molecular mechanisms of short and long-term memory. And that's, this was what really um, kept me hinged on the topic. Um, and actually before that, I actually, um, yeah, sort of vision to go more towards a clinical trajectory so there was quite a change then of, of, of interest that that occurred so it was clear that I um, wanted to do a master thesis in this in this area um, and actually beyond that I didn't think because <laughs> I come from a um, non-academic background so I'm also the first in my family who attended university so I had absolutely no clue about academic trajectories or career paths so I just thought yeah I want to do a master thesis on this <laughs> and from there it started then. Okay so yeah you got into the your passion for the brain was first from maybe a more clinical perspective about understanding how the human mind works and then you've discovered research so then you were saying that you wanted to do a more academic oriented master thesis so what did you do Mm -hmm. um, so in Graz, the uh, big focus there is brain-computer interfaces, um, so recording brain signals, and then the ultimate goal would be for, for example, locked-in patients to provide them with means of communication. And um, there, it was the case that they have a strong link with um, a research center in the US, the Wadsworth Center, the New York State Department of Health in New York. And uh, so I was able to go there for six months, um, do a small study and, and do some research there. And uh, I had a really, really sweet and nice mentor there. And this um, this lady really also encouraged me to think about the possibility of a academic uh, career path. And then when I came back, also my, my former um, supervisor mentored at the University of Graz, she then mentioned, yeah, and then maybe after that, you go on to, you know, like um, do a PhD. And this was the first time that I even thought of it at all that this was something that I could do you know like I never thought that that was something that I would be able to do and then uh, yeah and so I went from there and I um, I really liked it in the US but I um, also was quite homesick I have to say <laughs> so I looked for something that is within Europe um, to be able to go home a bit more often more easily 
but I didn't really have an idea like where in Europe. So I just really did a random, it's quite a random, random uh, um, uh, career path I'm describing here. But yeah, so I was just looking for whatever position was open and found one that was specifically in a topic of my interest. So cognitive neuroscience of learning and memory and specifically how prior knowledge um, uh, affects the way how we learn new information, how we consolidate these memories, etc. And um, that was in the Netherlands at the Donners Institute. Um, and uh, yeah, I then got invited for an interview, got the job. And um, that was quite an interesting experience because it was the, yeah, it was quite a, a change for me as well here. So I, I was always, yeah, I learned quite easily and I didn't have, you know, like put like too much effort into things. But there it really changed because the research environment there, I felt at least at the time was quite competitive. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it was quite scary, like as a, as a new PhD student. So I think there um, I really sort of had to find my place in this environment first. And I put, yeah, put quite a lot of effort in, but then eventually also managed to, to finish the PhD um, um, yeah, successfully. So what, whatever aims like I had, um, what goals I set for myself. And um, yeah, so then after that, I um, I realized that um, although the Netherlands are not so far away, but um, yeah, so basically what the, the next thing would, would have been a postdoc position. And some of my, a lot of my colleagues um, went to the US. And so I thought, yeah, going to a lab that is really prestigious, somewhere in Yale or Stanford is certainly really, really good for your CV. But um, on the other hand, um, the problem also, or the case, it was a bit the case that my parents, um, of course, got older and my father was didn't have such great health. So for me, it was also really important to be able to be there for them and to go home. So I had a bit of a, you know, like I didn't know what to do for a while. and was a bit, it was quite unhappy and like unsettling situation. But then, um, um, yeah, quite randomly positioned, um, got ad position got advertised at the University of Vienna. And that was a six-year postdoc position, which is also quite quite unusual, actually, right? Because usually you have a two-year, three-year position, and then you manage to do, like, maybe one larger FMI study, and then by the, you don't even get time to fully publish it But by the time that, um, uh, yeah, the, the position is already over, so to say, and you have to go look for another job. Uh, so I moved to Vienna. Um, I decided to do, to take this job. And um, the funny thing also was that uh, that this position was exactly written, like the, the advertisement was exactly written in a way that it would suit my skills and my expertise. It was a bit further away from my interests, though, because the lab there was focused on social neuroscience, which is not something that I had been doing. So I was a bit unsure in that regard, but then um, what really encouraged me to take this job was when I visited the lab um, in person. Uh, so I got to know the PI a bit better, but also the um, lab members and, and the, like the, the students he was supervising. And that really completely, you know, made me like con completely convinced me to go there because the atmosphere in the lab was so positive and so supportive. So they were so supportive amongst each other. And there was super big support um, coming from the PI. So really um, the lab atmosphere seemed amazing to me and that um so if, 
always like enjoyed being in in the previous lab so I, I did never had a problem or anything with a supervisor I always felt that I was mentored really well but there the atmosphere was like so nice that I thought I, I really have to go there if it, even if it's not 100% my topic you know like um I really the fact that that the social situation there seemed so nice and the fact that I would also be able to to go before, be there for my family if they needed my help and um, and to have a six-year position um, really convinced me to go to the University of Vienna. And then, um, yeah, and that turned out <laughs> that that was really a um, really, really good decision that I made in the end because my, um, my postdoc mentor there um, uh, was super flexible. So whenever I would, you know, pitch an idea to him or think that something is super interesting, even though I would be a bit away from his field and more like in line with my core interests, he would let me do it. So in the end, I had a lot of flexibility and I think that really was important for me to, yeah, come up with new ideas, come up with my own research line. And that perhaps, I mean, I don't know, but perhaps that, was something or something that I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise, like in a different lab with a um, smaller lab that is really, you know, in the US at Yale or wherever, where they have specific research goals. And that's all like um, based on the, the, the PI's vision. So in the end, that was really, really good. I think that I took this choice and then, um, or that I made this choice. And then uh, 2021, I then, um, there was a, so there was a, a tenure track position advertised at the University of Vienna. And I thought, well, this is something obviously I have to try. But um, the position was, again, <laughs> a bit of switch of fields. So it was um, on the gut-brain axis um, and actually yeah, spread across three different centers at the University of Vienna, also in combination with the microbiology. So quite different. Um, but I uh, thought this was... So I, I got super interested in this topic also because I thought this is really the opportunity to build sort of a research line that I would like to pursue over really the long term where I think there's so much that we still need to find out about um, that um, yeah there's really ample opportunity for research and um, yeah so I got this get this position yeah yeah beautiful beautiful explanation of all your career so many things I want to ask you if you don't mind before we go into the topics that you're studying now in your lab I want to go a bit of uh, one step back because you were mentioning your PhD so you were, for your master, you were working on brain-machine interfaces. And then for your PhD, you did a different thing. If you would like to elaborate on that, I think it could be really nice to understand your trajectory. And also, it seems to me that it's quite interesting, the challenges that you are describing about being away from family, being the first one in your family to pursue an academic career. I think this is also an interesting perspective and, I guess, that took an extra effort for you during your PhD. So if you'd like to share that perspective as well. So yeah, tell me a bit more about your PhD and then we'll go uh, more into your lab. Sure. Um, so during my PhD, I worked on um, the effects of prior knowledge um, on learning and memory consolidation. And um, so uh, one phenomenon is that, or a phenomenon is that if you have, if you know, um, have a lot of knowledge about a specific topic, then it's much easier for you to learn something that is in line with this. So for example, if I'm a biology student, I'm going to be better in learning biology-related information than something completely else. For example, it would take me more effort and I would remember it less well. Um, and I specifically was interested how these effects are represented in the brain um, and how they change throughout consolidation 
information? Why is it also the case that some information or like, yeah, uh, yeah, that some information is better remembered than others, uh, like other bits and pieces of infos? Um, and um, and for that, actually, I could use quite nicely the um, sort of the background I had from this brain machine interface um, studies because their um, uh, uh, machine learning methods are important, and I then could use the knowledge from there to to um, uh, decode uh, uh, neural representations from fMRI data. So that was actually quite quite useful. So that was the research um, that I did during my PhD, and then uh, you touched upon the topic of like being the first one in the family and being um, to study and being away from home, and that's yeah. So this combination <laughs> that was also um, quite challenging at the beginning, and especially also said that before that um, this. I perceived this um, environment at the beginning of my PhD there as quite competitive, and I, I mean, I, I have to say that I think I was probably quite intimidated by the level of expertise that was present and how the meetings went and everything. So that was quite intimidating at the beginning. And um, that was actually, that made me actually quite nervous. So I think that, uh, yeah, what, what sort of developed there that I became, became quite scared also of giving presentations. So that was one sort of challenge that I faced at the beginning of my PhD that I just felt, um, yeah, <laughs> sort of huge imposter syndrome that I felt I'm absolutely in no position here to give a presentation. And like I was, yeah, had difficulties also handling the feedback of, of people um, and sort of using it in a positive way and seeing this as a positive learning experience. So what I did in the end or how, how I overcame this was just to <laughs> expose myself to as many presentations as possible to somehow get rid of this this sort of internal fear and nervousness. And that, um, that actually helped quite a lot. And, um, and also what helped um, really lots, of course, was then publishing the first papers because this is sort of the first proof that you that you accomplished something and you did something and um yeah so that um that helped a lot there <laughs> yeah i think imposter syndrome can be really tough to to challenge and and, and to deal with it but I, I guess yeah i think it's not the first time that i hear this thing about the first time when you publish your papers like okay maybe i'm good at this you know maybe <laughs> maybe i can do this so it's a quite a but until then it's <laughs> it's difficult yeah yeah, and and so I, I'm curious to know. Uh, so y you are working with humans. You are analyzing data. Are you also acquiring the data on the lab, interacting with the subjects, or how how did your in terms of experiences? What were you doing for your PhD? Yeah, yeah. So um, indeed, so I was working with participants, human participants, so typically um, between the age of like twenty to thirty-five, and we we, we would invite them uh, to the laboratory to take part in an fMRI magnetic resonance imaging experiments. We scan their brain structure and the brain function over time. And while they are in a scanner, they do different tasks, um, memory tasks, for example, and then um, either test them immediately or test them like a week later to see how much they still remember and, and how these um, representations in the hippocampus and the metaprofrontal cortex, for example, um, change over time and also to see like what for example is special about uh, memory representations that stay or remain for a longer while as opposed to those that 
that are immediately forgotten or that fade away with time. And by doing that sort of basic research, we hope to try to get an understanding how how this works in the brain on this very coarse level, of course. I mean, this is... Um, um, this is only one aspect, of course. There's a lot of animal research going on in this domain, which is hugely important also to inform our experiments, the, the work that we do. But with doing this sort of basic research, we hope to get an understanding of how it works and how what might go wrong in, in neurodegenerative disorder, for example. Mm-hmm. And one of the really cool, cool things that I read while I was preparing our interview was that you also did some studies about mnemonics and how this can improve memory performance with training. I think, is there also like, yeah, I was wondering, can this be applied to our daily lives or how do you see this? <laughs> um, yes, this is something that uh, the people can just train. So it's a strategy um, that you can um, that you can that you can train. So this is uh, the idea would be that you have a specific spatial route that you're very familiar with, like the path through your apartment. And then if you need to remember a list of words, you imagine walking through your apartment and um, placing the different items of a shopping list, for example, different parts. And and the idea is that you make um, very weird associations and this combination of like prior knowledge of a spatial route, um, but also very strange um, salient associations is really good for your memory system, basically, or your memory system can can deal with this very well. And that's um, therefore these these items are going to be remembered super, super well uh, over a long term time. And uh, yeah, if you want to retrieve them, you just like mentally reroute um, through your apartment and can you can retrieve those images. And we found that so this technique is typically or is often used by um, so-called memory champions when they participate in world memory championships and they can really reach exceptional memory performance with that. But we um, and we uh, also uh, scanned those um, world memory champions while they were doing different memory tasks. Uh, but then also we had mnemonics naive participants um, train this method over like six weeks, and we could show that they they were not as good as the memory champions, but they also really improved in their memory. But on the brain level, it was quite interesting that there was no difference um, to the to the memory champions. And what we actually found was that these um, regions in the brain that are important for memory and visual spatial um, imagination, that um, these regions were actually, so typically we find that they're more um, active or more engaged when you remember something um, or when you study something that's later going to be remembered. But what we found was that these areas after training were less active. So it seemed as the whole, as if the whole brain sort of, or the, you know, the brain network structure sort of seemed to become more, uh, more efficient, so you need less activity to actually improve or or uh, show better performance, and that was actually quite a surprising finding. But uh, yeah, <laughs> that's super interesting. Really, really cool research. Okay, and so one of the things that I, I'm curious also is that so you had this you know tough adaptation to your PhD, but then you did absolutely great. I mean, you did a lot of cool stuff and a lot of research, and but was there at any point, even maybe on the transition from your postdoc, that you were even not about the challenge itself, but rather like, oh, maybe I would like to go back to the clinical aspect of, of psychology, or you were just, you know, once you got into research, you never looked back. <laughs> no, that was absolutely not the case. Um, so I actually have to say that, um, so one of the 
biggest challenges I sort of I think I'm facing that sort of right now <laughs> so this is the t transition now from being a postdoc to the tenure track position starting up the own group which is still relatively small but um, still there's a lot of you know like additional administration faculty duties I'm not just part of one institute or center but like have actually three affiliations and they all would like me to go to all the faculty meetings and being all committees because I'm also a woman and that's <laughs> you have to be in a lot of committees and stuff um, and that's I feel that's way too much at the moment um, I'm trying to reduce it as much as possible but also at the same time not just like the transition in terms of position but also again this transition um, towards a slightly different field or towards this interdisciplinary field between gut and brain which also you know this microbiology is like heavily hugely important for that for that um, for that topic um, and this has been very difficult um, so I'm now two years into the tenure track position I have two more years to to fulfill some of these qualification agreements we call them and then once you finish those you actually obtain a permanent position and switch to associate professor but um, yeah for, for that I have to like still publish a couple of papers and get a big grant and stuff and it's everything just takes really long and it's um, very stressful somehow and I yeah, I <laughs> would lie if I would say that I haven't been thinking about do I really want to do this? Why am I doing this? And I usually don't um, say this or like speak about this so much because I think or have the feeling that I should be grateful for this position, you know, because many people want a tenure trip position. It's difficult to get. Um, but um, in reality, I think it's not always so great. And it's... Uh, yeah, I sometimes also wonder whether that's the right thing to do. But um, what makes me stay is then always that I'm so interested in the topics I'm working on so that um, that I could not imagine doing a different job. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I cannot imagine the, the challenge. I'm, I'm still, you know, a young PhD, but I, I can anticipate that it can be quite stressful. And so it's good that you still find the passion in what you do to keep on pushing forward. And um, yeah, I really want to talk to you about this gut-brain axis. So you started investigating this when you transitioned to your postdoc. I work on animal uh, research and I know this has been a bit kind of started more like maybe 10, 15 years ago. But you're working from the human perspective. So how is the field evolving? Is it also quite recent, the new developments and more people working on it? And also, what is it that got your attention in the first place? Mm -hmm. And yeah. what did you do? Yeah, so actually this, this gut brain topic I'm, I'm working on since two years. <laughs> because during the PhD, I um, uh, did quite similar work also, uh, sorry, during my postdoc, I did quite similar work also as during the PhD. And two years ago, I then switched to the gut brain field. And um, uh, so what I'm very interested in is um, how, of course, the gut uh, microbiome composition and function, um, whether that's related to neuroplasticity, specifically hippocampal plasticity, learning and memory. Um, and uh, you're right, you said before that the field is um, yeah, relatively young and also relatively small. And from the human side, there's not so much work being done. There's a lot of clinical work, but really investigating this topic from a cognitive neuroscience aspect with um, human participants, for example, in the MRI scanner and, and a range of cognitive tasks um, that's not, um, that hasn't been done too much. Um, so there's a lot of uh, opportunity <laughs> for studies there for me. 
Um, and what I'm interested in at the moment is one study we're doing, this is actually data that we are hoping to finalize in data collection um, in September, um, is uh, the gut microbiome uh, composition function and differences um, between uh, young health individuals at genetic risk for Alzheimer's disease uh, versus versus not. Um, so specifically looking here at this APOE4 uh, allele. And, um, and there, quite interestingly, these individuals are young and healthy and they don't show any cognitive decline, obviously, so they're completely fine. And usually in different cognitive tasks, they sometimes even tend to perform better than uh, non-carriers of this risk gene. But in very subtle um, cognitive tests, um, you can see differences. So maybe they use different strategies, you know, to compensate for for um, uh, uh, potentially a bit lower performance. And um, one thing also that we're looking at at the moment is whether um, whether grid-like code, so uh, um, spatial navigation signals in the hippocampus, whether those are um, uh, changed um, in these um, in these uh, risk genes carriers and that's specifically connects to, to like a couple of papers that have that have uh, looked at this aspect here before um, and here I'm also very interested in this connection now coming from the gut um, specifically also connected to the neurotransmitter GABA gamma aminobutyric acid uh, which is um, also produced in the or synthesized in the gut microbiome not just in the brain and the neurotransmitters um, uh, uh, can by different routes also uh, affect brain function and this is what I'm trying to focus at the moment and in my future experiments this is what I'm interested in the most at the moment Okay, cool. And and so this also involves having uh, human subjects. And uh, but I guess, well, here there is not really a, a task or is there? So what is the type of experiments that you are doing, if you can share a bit about that? Yeah, so I'm actually doing quite similar experiments as I as I did um, previously. So um, classical memory tasks that let me look at memory durability, so how much and how well people remember um, over time, um, what how these representations look like at the brain. So these are all tasks that specifically also engage the hippocampus, um, which is sort of the core region for for memory function in the brain, and one of the first that is affected also by neurodegenerative disease. Um, but also a spatial navigation tasks, of course. So these type of tasks, um, and we can also, we're setting this up at the moment, we can also use um, spectroscopy to look at um, glutamate and GABA levels um, in, the, in the hippocampus, in the brain. Um, and then uh, at the same time, or not at the same time, but like in the course of the study, participants also donate a stool sample and we can genetically sequence these and get a hold of like what sort of microorganisms, which type of bacteria are present um, in the stool. And um, we can also do uh, shotgun metagenomics to see what sort of functions um, these, um, these, uh, these microorganisms potentially carry out. One goal also in the future will be to take, for example, blood samples to see, to get a hold of the metabolome, uh, etc. And so this would be, yeah, like a, the typical components of such an experiment. Um, and what is, of course, challenging is that, uh, yeah, that this is all done with human subjects, human participants. It takes quite a long time just to, to finish the data collection for one participant. And you also should like collect as many <laughs> participants as possible. So um, yeah, that's also why I have to say that um, 
things took way longer than I expected now since this tenure track uh, position started. So I'm I'm very eager to get the first um, the first projects done and to really like get some papers out finally. Yeah. Yes. Not not only is it tough experimentally because it's not like uh, you know animal research where you can have bunch of animals and run them in one batch and you're all set human subject animal research is also really tough yeah. <laughs> in human subjects it sounds much harder and then also setting up your lab so you already uh shared that it's indeed a big challenge and also one of the things that i think it, uh, it is also a common shared experience with other women that we interview here in the podcast is the fact that i don't know i guess this was what you were telling me about is that so you're starting a lab and then you're also part of all of these committees. And it, so it's quite a, a pressure uh, sometimes in women that the field wants to change and uh, stop having a bias and putting more women in positions of power. But then also the fact that there is such a big need that also women uh, have these administrative roles, then that takes time from them as well. I guess this was a bit what you were sharing as a challenge. So not only setting up the lab, doing the first experiments, which is hard by itself, but also being involved in all of these things, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So at the beginning, I still <laughs> rather enjoyed it because I also found it interesting just to get to know how university politics work. And this is in, especially like in Austria, Switzerland, Germany, and like I guess all the German speaking countries, this can be really, really complex as well. Um, but um, uh, yeah, so in the beginning, I more enjoyed it. But then, um, so now it just becomes really a lot and, and not just like different committee work, but also just being in all these faculty meetings. And of course, like, I mean, the, the three centers, institutes, I'm in there, all University of Vienna. So I mean, the information that is, it's like 90% shared information in all these meetings. And like, I, <laughs> it's like always um, desired that I go to all of those. And, you know, you should like always show your face. And like, it's not just important that you, of course, that you are productive in terms of research and, and teaching, but also you have to show that you're an active member of the community and the, and the institute. But um, it just becomes really a lot. Um, so, um, yeah first of all being a woman and then constantly being asked um, asked to join but then also um having at the same time the pressure of like fulfilling the tenure track uh, qualification um points and aspects i think that that can really be a lot and there at some point you just have to i mean that's also what i had to learn just to say no to certain things um certain comedy work but also like not taking up more and more projects and uh yeah just have to draw boundaries because in the end I mean yeah I think it's also really important that you that like in the end of the day you can go home and you can relax and you can exist also outside of your work which I think is hugely important because that actually makes me like during those times I usually get the best ideas so yeah you see I don't stop of course we don't stop thinking about it most of us <laughs> about our ideas and works but just you are in a more relaxed state and especially also in the weekends I started to um, just not look at my emails if possible and then come in fresh on a Monday I think that's really what's been very helpful in the in the last time. Yeah, I think that's that's a really common thing as well, that uh, for different people, setting boundaries will look different. But for sure, setting boundaries is important. And it's important also to find what boundaries work for every single individual. And what about the mentoring part? Because that's also a really big part of being a PI, mentoring new students. Have you been enjoying that process? 
Yes, I enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> um, I was a really, really nice student. <laughs> um, I, I think this is a lot of fun. It takes, of course, up a lot of time, but I um, have it quite scheduled so that, for example, um, so at least, at least, uh, um, so every week, um, one student has at least, at least one hour of time. Uh, right to my time basically and um, but also more if needed so they can come whenever they want uh, if they need something um, I think it's so it's a very interesting state at the moment so I've I mean I've been supervising students of course since the PhD already like having master students or interns etc but now or like co-supervising PhD students as a postdoc but now sort of having my own my first own PhD students um, is is really interesting so with it also comes of course this huge responsibility that they um, do something that they like and they're passionate about um, I mean that's not really my responsibility they should they should make the decision of when, when they take this position obviously but still you want to make sure that they that they're happy that they can um, progress forward that they achieve the goals that they set um, for themselves that they can successfully finish finish the phd um, so i think that's that's sometimes a bit much for me that i think like i i really want i want them to do really well and i don't want them to like leave after the four years and be like disappointed or think like well that was a waste of time or whatever um, I don't think that would happen, but but you know, just in theory. And also, what is interesting, I think, is for me learning to deal with different personalities. I think that <laughs> that is sort of a continuous uh, learning process um, to sort of yeah see how different people work, the different working styles, and also what sort of supervision styles they need and work for them. That's um, that's I think really interesting. So I did a couple of courses um, when I was a postdoc already, like preparing for this leadership role, etc. And they um, were to a certain degree also useful, but um, but I don't know. I think you just have to. For me, I just need to learn it when I when I do it. So it's like it's yeah, and it's always so on such an individual basis. I think it's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, but it's good anyways because I think it's a really big discussion that you know in our you know academia as a whole, people become uh, in leaders and uh, PIs. And it's true that we don't have sometimes these um, skills to, you know, lead others. And it can be quite challenging, especially because it's really on an individual basis. So it, I think it's good anyways that uh, you also invested uh, on those skills. I think it's quite nice. And um, so, yeah, I guess it's been more or less two years since you started your lab. And I think, as you were saying, it's one of the things you really want to get is um, a big uh, grant that would allow you to also um, re- uh, fulfill some of the requirements for the tenure track. But then if you, which I'm sure it will go great, and if you think about it as a perspective maybe of like in the next five years, what is something that, so other than that grant, obviously, which will be very important, what is something that is on your mind that you would really like to get? in terms of results or even like environment, uh, whatever, what is, what comes up to your mind? Um, I mean, research wise, I really want to understand whether the gut microbiome really has an effect on a human hippocampal function and memory. Like I, I want to do a set of experiments that like where they, you know, step-by-step step build on each other. Cause I think that's always the most beautiful and um, yeah, whether it's, it is the case or not, that doesn't matter. I just want to have a complete picture or like as complete as possible. 
um, to sort of then after that, I mean, that's for the next five years or 10 years and then venture on to, to yeah, to more complicated topics again. But um, yeah, and otherwise, I think just like have a, like my group perhaps a little bit bigger, but not too much because I think then it will be too overwhelming, but like a couple, maybe two or three more PhD students and a postdoc and something that works well where where I also have the feeling that they get along nicely with each other and they can help each other and support each other and they're happy in the working environments. I think that will be, yeah, just provide a good environment for for my my students and, and, and postdocs. I think that will be the, the goal that I have <laughs> besides research, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, well, we have already discussed quite a bit of things, but I, I'm really interested in your uh, uh, career because it's it's really common for me and um, to interview people coming from two sides. So people that either already came from a family that was, you know, family of professors or researchers or uh, people that, you know, were the first generation students. And so looking back on that, do you think that there is a change in how, do you think it's more inclusive now or do you think there are still changes to be made in the access of people to academia? Because to me, it still feels quite restrictive, but what do you think? Yeah, I feel the same. I think um, I think now is the time where like change is going to happen or like people start talking about this topic, that it's more difficult for um, uh, students from non-academic backgrounds to to uh, get into higher positions um, or that there's in general that there's a lack of diversity in academia and the higher positions. I think that that discussion is now opening up. But I think that um, on the higher levels, although there's a lot of effort, you know, for example, at my university, there's a lot of effort put into this, that at the atmosphere, they you know, strive everything to have it more uh, diverse and open and inclusive, but um, still a lot needs to change. And um, yeah, I mean, for example, I'm I'm also now at the, in another committee, <laughs> um, but um, they're specifically targeting um, women and um, individuals of, of other marginalized uh, marginalized gender identities and trying to help them achieve their career goals and like set foot in science or in academia so that they also manage to achieve um, uh, more higher positions. But at the same time, what we noticed also that there's really a need for continuous education also at the faculty level so what we want to do now is also really um yeah set up courses or like once or twice every semester where then the professors also participate um you know once a year or twice a year in different courses like just educating them once more or maybe also for the first time about specific biases that that um can guide their decisions implicitly etc because i think i mean also from coming from psychology like the professors they are quite aware of it but in different fields sometimes um it's it's really not the case so i think um yeah this will be. This is something that I'm that I'm uh, quite uh, excited about to set that in place. But yeah, I think a lot needs to be done still. <laughs> no, that that's that's really cool. It's really cool to know that uh, people are working on this th- in these things, and different institutions and universities are putting active effort into it. Okay, I think we've talked uh, about all of the things from your career, about the projects that you've been involved, about the things that you're passionate about. And so I, I usually like to finish up with something more light. 
so I and I, I like asking because I think it also gives a perspective on people as individuals and not just as researchers. What is it that you like to do in your free time? Do you have like a special hobby or something that helps you relax? <laughs> um, I like to uh, do yoga and go running. Um, and actually, I just like to take uh, walks with my husband <laughs> and look all the, at all the different uh, dogs that we see in the park and get some ice cream. So I think that's when it's like a really stressful day. I think just like taking like a relaxing walk and doing like silly things or whatever. I think that's, yeah, that's always the thing that relaxes me the most. Something fun that is completely different. Um, also, you know, let, because some hobbies you also want to like be better at it, etc. But something that completely does not involve this aspect <laughs> is always good. It's always good. And of course, as an Austrian, going on mountains. <laughs> cool. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Well, thank you so much for taking your time to talk to me today. It was a really great pleasure. Thank you for sharing your challenges and your passion for the brain. It was really cool. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>